attending, oh, all that stuff we thought, we picked up along the line that we thought we, were, we had to do to be okay. And it's absolutely not true because each one of you is an original. You're original. You're one of a kind. And early on in life, we start comparing ourselves. We start measuring ourselves for a variety of reasons, either our home or at school or on the playground or in the neighborhood. And that's not the kingdom of anybody else. So we're going to go over this in depth. Um, we're going to, hopefully, by the time I get to this part, we're going to look at some Brené Brown stuff because she, this is her thing. She, she just, if you know who she is, how many of you are familiar? Yeah, a research sociologist who's really pursued how do we live wholehearted. And she is a believer, but the stuff she does um, isn't, isn't necessarily talking about God, but everything she does, just add God. Just add, add God into the sentence, and it, it works because it's true to Scripture, and um, it's about who we are. She's talked to zillions of people to get truth, to get people's truth, and so she's, she's pulled in truth from lots and lots of people and found out a lot of common themes that all of us face, all of us struggle with, and... Out of that, I think there's some, going to be some key things. It's not easy. These are not easy things to process and to walk with God through. But they're things that are empowering and freeing and get you to the place where you're comfortable in your own skin and you don't feel like you have to add anything to who you really are. So if you were looking at my keynote, you would see it saying being our true selves. And I'd ask, I was hoping Cynthia Charles could join us. She's a, she's a good friend of mine that does a lot of inner healing work with me, but she is sick, so I don't think she's going to be able to make it. But just wanted to start, well, why don't we start by praying? Because my prayer for all of us tonight is that we could really, Jesus, would you just really help us all get in touch in a deeper way with who we really are, who you designed us to be, how to live in the moment, present with you, present with ourselves, present with the world around us, without having to wall off, without having to make up stories, without having to pretend but being so confident in your love for us and so confident that you may, did not make a mistake when you made us, that we just continuously drink from your river of living water and allow it to flow freely because knowing that we know that there's always enough of your love flowing through us, that it will never run out, and you designed each one of us to contain that love, that acceptance, that grace. Because each and every one of us is your kid. Each and every one of us you chose first. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Ooh, so some years back, gosh, a lot of years back, I was having um, a time with Jesus, and um, in my time with Jesus, I started recognizing that I had some walling off going on in my heart, 
And as I often try and do, if I'm kind of getting to that kind of a stuck place, I turn to the scriptures and I turn to Psalms. Psalm, Psalm 73, actually, and it talks a lot about having a rough time and feeling like people don't like you and, and having some struggles and all this. And I landed on, the scripture I landed on was, um, had to do with, oh, God, I'm just feeling like a beast, meaning I'm feeling like shut down, I'm feeling like I can't connect with my emotions. And then what started wrecking me, all the things that people around me would probably reject, or at least growing up, the people around me would have rejected and, and like given me messages that there was something wrong with me. And, you know, I had to internalize that deeply. There's something so wrong with me, nobody ever wants to be around me. I just very deeply internalized that. Um, but the next verse says, and this is God speaking back to you, nevertheless, I am continuously with you. And that spoke to such a deep place in me. No matter what kind of messed up place any of us ever is in, nevertheless, God is going to be with you in that place. People may not be able to. And people often cannot be with you. But God can be with you in every place, at every time, no matter whether you're running away, no matter whether you're throwing a temper tantrum, no matter whether you're shut down, no matter you're on cloud nine, he will be with you. Never will I leave you or forsake you. And that sort of opened something up in with me, and it opened up a vision for me. And I know that's why. It was like, you know, how visions happen with revelation very often. And my spirit was kind of getting ramped up, so I started seeing this vision. And in the vision... It was like I was in this huge castle. I knew this castle was, my, was me. It was somehow mysterious way, my soul, my spirit, something. And across the room, it was this huge room, and across the room there's this huge sphere, kind of like a plasma sphere. Have you ever seen that? Where there's like electrical lights and, you know, all this power and light and colors and things like that. And... And Jesus is with me, and we're, he's kind of beckoning me to walk with me over to this thing. And he's, he's saying, this is what the core of your being looks like. This is what the core of your being looks like. I don't know if that means that's what our glorified body looks like. I don't really know. But that's what he said, that that place of power and energy and life flowing, potential, just incredible. That's who you are at the core of your being. This temporary little clothes we're wearing for now. And he told me this about this, and I'm sharing this with you because this is true for all of you as well. There were four angels standing around that sphere, and he said, my servants, which were those angels, are here continuously to watch over and protect. And that's true for all of you. The core of who you really are is not lost. It just gets kind of glossed over by the hurts and wounds of this world. And that 
core of our being consists of purpose and passion and emotion and power. That's who you really are down deep inside. And intimacy with him calls forth your true calling. Because in that sphere is your true spiritual DNA, the giftings, the callings of who you really are. The flavors of how the Spirit of God flows through you is coded in that. Intimacy with God helps call forth that destiny, that purpose. That's, I won't go into the total details, but once upon a time I studied biochemistry. And the DNA gets coded, gets uncoded by the proteins and different things. In the same way, our spiritual DNA gets uncoded by intimacy with God. Okay? Well, I'm using the parallel between DNA codes for proteins, basically. The DNA pretty much is inert pretty inert inside our body. It, it's a coding. It's like a blueprint. Yeah, C-O-D-E, code. It's actually called codons. But anyway, that's another story. They may have changed the name by now because my biochemistry is way too old to even... Anyway. <laughs> but the DNA of who... Your spiritual DNA is what I'm talking about. Not your natural gifts, but in the spirit. Those things we think about in the spirit. Your prophetic call, your pastoral call, your evangelical call, your gift of mercy, your gift of healing, all those things are in the spirit coded within you. And the more intimacy with God, the stronger those, those gifts callings come forth and the specificity of how it comes out. I think that's the more important thing I want to bring about because you maybe have a prophetic gifting, but the way it flows through you is going to look different than the person next to you. And that's the way it's supposed to be, which is why it's so damaging when we start comparing ourselves because then we try and look like somebody else and it just doesn't work very well. Two, and this is more of what, what, what God started talking to me about. Our intimacy with him calls forth your true calling. The two are absolutely intertwined. Too many people live from the surface of who they really are, and they define their destinies as a reflection of what other people say about them. But we have a, tr a spiritual DNA that is imprinted with our true purpose and passion. As you learn to embrace your true self, you will taste freedom and it will feel fun. That was something he made very clear to me. This is to start feeling fun because you're really being like yourself. It's like restoring childlike awe and wonder. That is what it is. We become adults too quickly, too often as children. We're never supposed to really lose that ability to play, to have awe, to have wonder. Too many of us have, but it's there to be reclaimed. Old definitions and formulas of who you think you are and who you think you are supposed to be will start falling down as you allow yourself to be embraced with him and learn to feel that acceptance of your true self. New language, open fields, God himself is the one who defines who you are.
And he's calling us to become reconfigured in our minds and our understandings to become new and childlike as never before. To be free, to be full and fulfilled, and to have fun, just like a child. And if you see some people who really have gotten more mature I would propose to you a lot of them have gotten more and more childlike. Looks like somebody like Sean Boltz. Looks like somebody like Bill Johnson. I mean, they just are having fun when they're doing ministry. It's like if something happens or doesn't happen, they're cool because they're just hanging out with dad. And they're focused on dad. And they're focused on just the flow of love. And the results, well, the results will be what the results are because they are so confident in the reality that the results are on God. It's not about us. It's not about our gift. It's not about our ability. It's about that flow of the river that we're tapping into. And, yeah, let me see. Where am I? Now i got to get back to where I would have been. Yeah. Uh, And, what a really cool picture, if you could have seen it, but that's okay, of a river. (laughs) Picture a river in your head. Because as I was looking at that and and drawing near to that sphere of the true core of my being, I saw this river start flowing out from above me. That was the river of living water. And the scripture talks about the rivers of living water were burst out from within you, flowing from your innermost being, just like the scripture says. It's out of the core of your being, that is where the river of living water flows out of. So the freer we get, the more freely that river starts to flow, which I would propose to you is probably a reason why people like Peter saw people healed around him because he had gotten so freed up in God, that river was just of healing, was just pouring around him everywhere he went. The shadow, how does the shadow heal? Well, it was that essence of God flowing through him because he dealt with his soul issues and it was his spirit accessing God and allowing it to just come through. And we all have that potential in the spirit to allow that freedom to flow. A couple more scriptures. This is Psalm 57, 8, Amplified. This is talking about you, not about God. You, awaken your glory. Awaken harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. We will awaken the dawn. That is you living out of the true core of your being. I would propose to you, the scriptures are kind of referring that as your glory. Yes, God has glory, but there is a glory about you, too. The core of your being is your glory. That's that. I I would probably something that the New Agers tap into when they look at auras. Because I'll tell you, there's something real about that aura thing. I don't fully understand it, but there's something real. And I think they're seeing who you really are in the spirit in some mysterious way. Of course, it's not fully um, redeemed, (laughs) but there's something to it for sure because I've seen too much real stuff happen. I don't want to 
necessarily take the time to do that now. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. Okay, I'll tell you a quick story just because stories are awesome. I love stories. Okay, New Living Expo. Uh, I don't know. It was back when we were doing it in San Francisco, so it must have been six or seven years ago. And um, this woman and her daughter came in to receive ministry. The woman really wanted, well, the woman wanted ministry. I think she wanted some healing. The daughter didn't want anything to do with us, so she's kind of shut down. And so one of my team members is a seer. So um, he draws a picture for the girl, even though she didn't want to receive ministry, but he just he was getting a picture, so he drew the picture. And in the meantime, mom's getting prayer for healing, and she gets healed. I don't remember what it was now, but she got healed. And then, just this is the fun part of the story. I'm just going to add this. This isn't really my story, but this is the fun part. So then he shows the girl the picture he got. Her eyes bugged out. She rolls up her sleeve. It is a perfect carbon copy of her tattoo, which was like a flying horse. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The gift of seers is like, yeah. So anyway, that kind of woke her up. Well, they immediately went from our booth to the aura picture-taking booth, where they literally have a camera. I don't know how it works. Takes a picture of the aura. So they do that. And they come running back to our booth afterwards, and they're like, look, look, look showing us their picture, they told us it was the Christ energy aura. <laughs> yeah? Something to it. I don't know what, but anyway, that's just an aside, but isn't that crazy? Yes. <laughs> Something to it. Oh, I know. And I will say this, the guy who does the aura pictures, he's kind of a sweet guy, so he's on to something. He has a partial revelation, maybe, of what's going on with that. So a couple more scriptures about who we are, who we really are in the core of our being. This is Ephesians 4, 23 and 24 from the Passion. Now it's time to be made new by every revelation that's been given to you and to be transformed as you embrace the glorious Christ within as your new life and live in union with him. For God has recreated you all over again in his perfect righteousness. And you now belong to him in the realm of true holiness. And then 1 Peter 1.3. Celebrate with praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has shown us his extravagant mercy. For his fountain of mercy has given us a new life. We are reborn to experience a living, energetic hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are reborn to a perfect inheritance that can never perish, never be defiled, and never diminish. It is promised and preserved forever in the heavenly realm for you. This fountain of mercy, its new life is continuously available for you, right? His mercies are new for us every day. Every moment we take a breath, it's, things are new and fresh again if we get, start getting this revelation. So the mistakes, you know, the regrets, they have no place in the kingdom 
of heaven if we keep on focusing on the fact that we are new creations in Christ. So, why don't we do this? I'm going to have you all break up in a little group of two or three. No, we don't have too many people here today. Can you break up in groups of two or three? And what I'm going to have you all do is talk, share for a couple minutes each about what you remember, what a moment you might have connected with the true core of your being. And maybe it was your, as a child. For some of us, it might have been as a child. For some of us, it might, we can't, might not even, I don't know. But when you get caught up, can you remember a moment of time? Maybe it was even w- just watching a sunset. Could be something that simple. Where you were aware of being present, aware of awe, aware of not having a worry in the world. My, I think, best analogy is when you're a child, like I have two grandkids, okay, and it's so fun to watch them play. Because when they're playing, that's their whole world. And it's not like they're looking for to make something happen. They are so in the moment with the blocks or the dinosaurs, you know, or the whatever. That's all that matters. It's their world. So when was the last time, or a time, when you were able to allow your present, being in the present, to be your world, and nothing else was on the horizon, nothing else mattered in that moment? Because I truly believe God would have us live from that place on a regular basis. Because you can start seeing when you're able to start being present like that. You get connected. You get whole. You're accessing God. I know I I worry about things way more. I think I've become more aware recently, (laughs) way more than I've allowed myself to realize more recently. He's kind of bringing some things up for me. Okay, so would that be okay to do? And if you can't, it's okay. If you can't remember anything, it's okay. But how about this? How about imagine what that would be look like? Imagine what it would look like. You've, you've all watched children at play. Step into that place and just even imagine that. So let's all break up in groups of two or three. And I'll try and remind, you, know, remind you to, to change who's doing the speaking after about three minutes. Okay? Good job. I love it when people jump up and start moving around. Ah. Yeah?
Were you able to remember some things? Yeah. Cool. So, um, awesome. Yes. Well, you may not have noticed, but while you were busy paying attention to me, Charles Brazil transported himself here, fixed it, and transported himself back again. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> he also brought us a little, our little device wasn't working, so it was a technical problem. We found out the hard way that our little gadget wasn't working that's supposed to connect with the video. So that's what the, but now we know that one goes in the, in the garbage, yes. So I'm gonna have y'all do, is we're gonna extend that exercise just a little bit more, if that's okay with you. Is this okay? Is this, is this working for you? Okay, so I'm gonna have y'all sit back and close your eyes. This is just between you and God this time. Oh, and by the way, I'm gonna give you copies of all this stuff, so you don't have to even worry about it, if you want. That's Coming, coming attractions, that's Brené Brown stuff. We're, we're going to go over that in depth more. So, But right now, I want you to all close your eyes and sit back in your chair. From the top of your head, down to your shoulders, down to your arms, down to your stomach, just let, just, just let it be as if that river of living light Water is just flowing over you and just bringing, making everything go nice and relaxed. Take a deep breath in and out. And as we've been practicing having our time with Jesus, whether that's on a mountain meadow, whether that's sitting on the beach somewhere, I just invite you to go and be in that place with him right now. And if you're able to get close to him, that's awesome. If you're having a hard time getting close to him, why don't you ask him, Jesus, how come, how come I'm not able to relax and be in your presence? And have him see what he shows you. Jesus, what do you want me to know about myself in this place? Look all the way around you. Take in everything you can see, everything you can sense, everything you can hear. And ask him, Jesus, why are you meeting me in this place?
Be aware of what you're appreciating of, of about how he is being with you. What is good and right about meeting with him right now? And now ask him, Jesus, will you show me a part of my original self I've never understood before? And what benefit is there for me to connect with this part of my heart? Jesus, what difference will it make in my life to stay connected like this? Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. So I'm just going to pray over you, Jesus. I just ask that whatever um, space got opened up just now, that you would seal that connection, that you would help it be, help us be freer to just go to that place and live from that place. Hey. <laughs> to step into eternity more freely where everything is always available to us and there's always enough. Where the limits of this world sort of fade away. 
because we're tapping into the source of all things. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. So how's that, you guys? It's feeling pretty thick up here, I can tell you. pretty amazing who you really are, the core of who you are. It's pretty amazing. Thank you, Jesus. So I'm going to wait a couple more minutes because it's pretty clear some of the folks are kind of having a hard time coming back to real life. Oh, who wants to come back to real life? This, that's real life. That's real life. Yep. Well, before we move on, would anybody like to share anything from what just happened with them, for them? So, um, well, while we were talking, I shared of an experience where I was down in LA a couple weeks ago, and it was middle of the night, and I was after a whole lot of crying, there was this wonderful worship release, connecting with God, it's the middle of the night, but I don't care, we're heart to heart connecting. And so just now, when you had us connect, um, the Lord showed me that in my room as a child, I used to serenade him in that very room, and just sing until all hours of the night. And he said a couple of things to me. He said, one, one thing he said was, um, yeah, he was like, I'm the one that holds you then, and I'm the one that holds you now. And let me see, I wrote down. He said, um, he reminded me that I serenaded him, and then he said he was happy to serenade me this time around, or any time I wanted. Yeah. Anybody want else want to share anything? It can also feel very personal, so I understand. It's okay. There will be more. So Russ is going to uh, cue up Brene Brown, so we'll take a little bit of a 
a shift here. If any of you are in, and I, oh, I will have some handouts. I'll do that after we watch the video, though. Um, if any of you are interested in this, well, she's all over the internet because she's kind of taken the internet by storm. I think she's like maybe the top, one of the top TED Talks ever. Um, she calls this, if you're interested, 10 rules, 10 rules for success or something like that. But they very much, because I think she did this for business, but it was just a place I could find that had some of these principles that are written in a lot of her books that I think are very helpful for us to think about. Um, I would also say these are practices to help us become more wholehearted if we start. These are the kind of things we, that this is what our lives will look like if we feel confident in who we are in Christ. If we have value for ourselves. If we have self-compassion for ourselves. So she doesn't talk about God. And I'll right now say Brene Brown uses a little bit of language. So let your religion, leave the religion. I mean, it is, it's who she is. She's actually a Christian, but she's also a sociologist. So, and she comes from Texas. So she's kind of got this tough-ish veneer. But, um, but she is, um, what I love about her is the things she's talking about, she has processed for her own life. I'm like, I kind of want to be like Brene when I grow up. But, I mean, I'm still feeling like I'm so learning all these things. It's because um, I've read a lot of her stuff, and it's, it's very, she talks a lot about her stories and, and the hard things she's gone through and how she's had to make decisions and she's had to have hard conversations. And, you know, so she's learned to do these things. She's not just talking about it in theory. So we'll go ahead and start... Brene, and then, um, so we're going to go through seven. We're not going to go through all ten. We're just going to go through seven, and then when she's done, we'll gather, we'll talk about all the different principles, and then we'll have you regather in groups again, and we'll go over them. We'll kind of divide up and, and talk about a few of them. All right? Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. is that I'm, I am a researcher and I never thought I would have a big public career. Um, and so I did a TED talk that went very viral. And in the wake of that, I was kind of everywhere for a couple of months on every CNN.com, NPR, it was everywhere. Is it on? Oh, it is. I thought I turned it off. Willing to be seen, even if you're not sure what the outcome might be. Ow. Ouch. Even, even when you're not sure 
And so my story is that I'm, I am a researcher and I never thought I would have a big public career. Um, and so I did a TED talk that went very viral. And in the wake of that, I was kind of everywhere for a couple of months on every CNN.com, NPR, it was everywhere and something I wasn't used to. And the marching orders from my therapist and my husband were do not read the comments online. <laughs> so I read all the comments online. Um, and so one morning I woke up and there were two or three new articles out and I started reading the comments and they were devastating. Um, they weren't about my work, they were about me. They were super personal. And they were the things that creative people play in their mind and then give up doing what they really wanna do. Like if I asked every single one of you, you would try, what would you try if you knew people would never say this about you? What would, that, what would this be? It were, those were the comments that morning. Um, of course she embraces imperfection. What choice does she have? Look, what she, look how she looks. Um, I feel sorry for her kids. Um, less research, more Botox. Um, just mean, personal attacks. The things that really, up until that moment, had inspired me to stay very small in my life and my career, just so I could avoid those things. So that morning, Steve and the kids leave. I stay home. I get on the couch, and I watch eight hours of Downton Abbey. <laughs> and when it's over, I don't want to turn off Downton Abbey. Because the minute you turn off Downton Abbey, then it's like soccer practice and dinner and back to the mean people. And maybe, should I get Botox? And maybe, you know, maybe if I stand still when I talk. Um, so I get out my laptop and I do a search for who was president in the United States during the Downton Abbey era. Have you ever done that? Like you, you're numbing with TV or a movie and so when it's over you just like stay in that space by like learning more about the actors and what's going on. Um, I've been doing this long enough to know this is like, you're laughing with me, not at me. Um, so I put it in and Theodore Roosevelt comes up and a quote comes up and I read it. And this is what it says. It's a quote from a speech that he gave in the early 1900s at the Sorbonne. And a lot of people call it the man in the arena speech. And this is the passage that changed, changes my life. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with blood and sweat and dust, who at the best, in the end, knows the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, he fails daring greatly. So the moment that I read that, I closed my laptop and this is what shifted in me. Three huge things. First, I spent the last 12 years studying vulnerability and that quote was everything I know about vulnerability. It is not about winning, it's not about losing, it's about showing up and being seen. The second thing, this is who I want to be. I want to create. I want to make things that didn't exist before I touched them. I want to show up and be seen in my work and in my life. And if you're going to show up and be seen, 
there is only one guarantee, and that is you will get your ass kicked. That is the guarantee. That's the only certainty you have. If you're gonna go in the arena and spend any time in there whatsoever, especially if you've committed to creating in your life, you will get your ass kicked. So you have to decide at that moment, I think for all of us, if courage is a value that we hold, this is a consequence. You can't avoid it. The third thing, which really set me free, and I think Steve, my husband, would argue has made me somewhat dangerous, is kind of a new philosophy about criticism, which is this. If you're not in the arena also getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. <laughs> Period. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Did you ever wonder why some people get ahead? Why some people interested in your feedback? <laughs> Period. That's it. What does it mean to be a wholehearted person? You have actually you know, um, a list of 10 dif different qualities that wholehearted people have in common. And so, so cultivating like authenticity, clips letting go people. of what people think. That's the first one, let's talk about that. It'd be easier if there was video, sorry. It's so hard. I thought doing this research, I thought going this into it, there were authentic people and authentic people. Mm -hmm. I, had, I did not find any evidence of that at all. What I found is authenticity is a practice and you choose it every day, sometimes every hour of every day. And it's a practice. It's not, I just wake up and hey, I'm authentic. It's that when you walk into a meeting, you have to make the choice. Am I gonna show up and let myself be seen? Am I gonna, am I gonna raise my hand and say, wow, y'all look super excited. I don't know what in the hell you're talking about. I'm so <laughs> lost. You know, that's a choice. Yes, uh-huh. Right? Mm -hmm. and, when to, and to be, make that authentic choice, you gotta let go of, 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 of the faker, fakeroo, I say. Yeah. I call it the fakeroo. But you know what? I have found, I mean, I, I consider myself to be an authentic person, but when I am inauthentic is when I've allowed myself to be around people who were not, and then I have to fake it to be with them. Oh, for sure. It's contagious. Yes. So they're faking it, yeah. and then, and you know you're in that situation when you do that, ha ha, that kind of ha ha, you're laughing at jokes that aren't funny, you're pretending to be comfortable when you're not, and lose your own authenticity. Yeah, and I do it. One of the most shocking findings of my work was the idea that the most compassionate people I have interviewed over the last 13 years were also the absolutely most boundaried. Because they, so I'll give you a great definition of the, the, the definition of boundary that I use in the book. Boundary is simply what's okay and what's not okay. What I think we do is we don't set boundaries. We let people do things that are not okay or get away with behaviors that are not okay. Then we're just resentful and hateful. Me, I'd rather be loving and generous and very straightforward with what's okay and what's not okay. So my question is big, B-I-G. What boundaries need to be in place for me to stay in my integrity and make the most generous assumptions about you? But generosity can't exist without boundaries, and we are not comfortable setting boundaries because we care more about what people will think, and we don't want to disappoint anyone. We want everyone to like us, and boundaries are not easy. Um, but I think they're the key to self-love and I think they're the key to treating others with loving kindness. You can't, nothing is sustainable without boundaries. What I found, you know, 12 years of research, um, 
11,000 pieces of data. I, ha I did not interview in all that time a person who would describe themselves as joyful or describe their lives as joyous who did not actively practice gratitude. Um, and for me, it was very counterintuitive because I kind of went into the research thinking that the relationship between joy and gratitude was if you're joyful, then you should be grateful. But it wasn't that way at all. It was really that practicing gratitude invites joy into our lives. And when I say practice, I think this is, this is the part that really changed my life. It changed my family and the way we live every day. When I say practice gratitude, I don't mean kind of like the attitude of gratitude or feeling grateful. I mean practicing gratitude. These folks shared in common a tangible gratitude practice. They either kept gratitude journals. Um, some of them did interesting things like at 1, 2, 3, 4, like at 12, 34 every day. They said something out loud that they were grateful for. They, um, one of the things that we do, like we say grace at dinner. And so now after grace, we go around and everyone in my family says something they're grateful for. I mean, and what's interesting is when we first started, I have um, a first grader, a first grade son, Charlie, and eighth grade daughter, Alan. And at first I thought, and we've been doing it for a couple of years now, like they're like, oh God, mom. And it, there was a little like, this is, you know, are you experimenting on us? There was a little bit of that. But now what's interesting, even after we did it for like a couple of weeks, that on those crazy busy nights where we're trying to like get to soccer and piano and homework, and Steve and I are just like, we say a quick prayer and we start eating, and my kids are like, whoa, what are you grateful for? And it's been extraordinary because not only absolutely does it invite more joy into our house, um, it also is such a soulful window into what's going on in my kids' lives. You know, so there are some days where my eighth grader will be like, I'm joyful that there's a huge thick wall between my room and my brother's room. You know, something just very, you know, honest. But there are other days she'll say, you know, she had a friend whose mother recently died. Um, and she said, you know, for a month she would say, I'm just so grateful that y'all are healthy right now. You know, and so not only did it make us all more aware of what we had and more willing to slow down and really be thankful for the joyful moments we had, but it let me know where she was emotionally in her life. You know, and my son is, is always, you know, I'm grateful for bugs, I'm grateful for frogs, but sometimes he'll say, you know, I'm grateful that you picked me up early, or, you know, I'm grateful that I finally understand adjectives, <laughs> you know? So it's, there's a great quote um, that says, it's not, grat it's not joy that makes us grateful, it's gratitude that makes us joyful. And, um, it's by a Jesuit brother, a Jesuit priest. And I guess I was just amazed to find that bubble up so strongly in the research. It's life-changing. We think about vulnerability as a dark emotion. You know, there are a lot of people who talk about light emo you know, positive emotions, negative emotions, dark emotions, light emotions. We think of vulnerability as a dark emotion. We think of it as the core of fear and shame and grief and disappointment, uncertainty, things that we do not wanna feel, right? Things that I don't wanna be vulnerable because that means I'm afraid, that means I'm uncertain, that means I'm, 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 I'm at risk, I'm exposed, I'm, I'm in grief. So what we do is we armor up and we say, I do not wanna slip into these dark emotions. I will not let myself be vulnerable. But here's 
what I learned from the research and certainly put into motion in my own life that was the most life-changing is that vulnerability is the center of difficult emotion. But it's also the birthplace of every positive emotion that we need in our lives. Love, belonging, joy, empathy. How many of you would agree that we're in a serious empathy deficit in our culture today? Totally, right? No vulnerability, no empathy. In a culture where people are afraid to be vulnerable, you can't have empathy. You know, empathy is not a default response. If you share something with me that's difficult, in order for me to be truly empathic, I have to step into what you're feeling. And that's vulnerable. So there can be no empathy without vulnerability. Um, why do you think, in that example that I used a while ago, daughter comes home and says, you know, tears. No one sat with me at lunch today. They made fun of what I was wearing. So-and-so won't talk to me. They poured my books out of my locker. And the response back is, I told you, I bought you all those cute jeans. Why aren't you wearing those jeans? And pull your hair back. Is that an empathic response? No, it's a shaming response. Could that shaming response be it that could, could, could a mother who absolutely adores her child respond with that shaming response? Please say yes, don't kid yourself. I mean, come on. If, you've got a, if you're a parent sitting in here, then you sure as hell know the answer to that is yes. Um, but why, why did that happen? What, where was the access to vulnerability? Where was, I mean, where was empathy? You can't access empathy if you're not willing to be vulnerable. So if my daughter comes home and tells that to me, guess what I have to do? I have to reactivate that sweaty-palmed seventh grader who lives inside me. And I have to go, oh God, that's so hard. I'm so sorry. That's happened to me. That's happened to me when I was in middle school and it's happened to me last week. Let's talk about it. But you can't get there without vulnerability. You can't fake empathy. Innovation and creativity, born of vulnerability. <laughs> um, this is my favorite part. I talked about this and I did another TED Talk this year at, in Long Beach. And I told the story that during 2011 and even this year, um, after the big TEDx Houston talk went viral, the, the big calls came from Fortune 500 companies. Oh my God, we loved your TED talk. It was great. Please come talk to all of our senior leaders. And it's like, okay, um, what do you want to talk about? Like, we don't care. Just come and talk to us. Just um, if you could ixnay the shame and vulnerability talk. <laughs> Every single conversation, barring maybe 10%. I was like, well, what do you mean? Well, we love, you know, you're, you know, you're funny. You have this great research. I think there's a real fit with what we do. We just, we don't really do, you know, that kind of stuff around here. So you, if you could not mention vulnerability and shame. <laughs> so just for fun, for grins, I would say, okay, so what would you like me to talk about? Yeah, fourth quarter earnings, like freaking don't even balance my checkbook. Um, <laughs> like, I'm not going to talk about that. So... What do, you, what, do you want, what do you want me to talk about? Well, 
the big issue, creativity and innovation. Mm. And change, we're going through a lot of change. <laughs> like, okay, so vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity, innovation, change. And the reason that crisis is happening is because you're not talking about vulnerability. Imagine creativity and innovation without vulnerability. I'm asking you for a work product that has never been made before, that's completely innovative. I need you to be creative. And I need you to present it to a group of people who are going to, half of them are going to think it's stupid and not understand it. No vulnerability there. Perfectionism, what emerged for me in the data was that perfectionism is not about striving for excellence or healthy striving, which yeah. I'm for. Yeah. It's a cognitive behavioral process, a way of thinking and feeling that says this, if I look perfect, do it perfect, work perfect, and live perfect, I can avoid or minimize shame, blame, and judgment. You know what I thought when I was reading this? I had another aha, aha. Two people. <laughs> this was my other aha, that perfectionism, I never gotten this before until I read this, that perfectionism is the ultimate fear that the people who are walking around as perfectionists, who have to have everything so, yeah. yeah, that they are ultimately afraid that the world is going to see them for who they really are and they won't measure up. There's no question. That's, that's what it that's is That's correct, me. right? That's exactly okay. what it is. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's fear. Because it's, it's very different than trying to be excellent no, and working yeah. hard and doing your best. Yeah. Yeah, and so I call perfectionism the 20-ton shield. We carry it around thinking it's gonna protect us from being hurt, yeah. but it protects us from being seen. Let me tell you this real story. This just happened. I spoke at HubSpot last week. Okay, 13,000 people in this Boston Convention Center. It's like 10 minutes before I go on. And I'm making the, I look at Twitter and I'm, this person sends this tweet out that says, why is Brene at HubSpot? Why is at Brene Brown at HubSpot 2015? And he had just tweeted like, love Seth Godin, love Amy Schumer, all these people, but why is Brene Brown? And I'm like, oh my God. Why am I at HubSpot? What am I doing here? Um, and then I'm like, I start sweating. And it's like, and you know, it's a convention center. It's like, because you know, ladies, you know, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? And I'm, I'm the opening keynote. And I'm like, and then he tweets it again. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I'm like, these are marketing people. I don't know anything. So I start Googling on my phone, um, marketing terms 2015. And <laughs> wait, the first term that comes up is incentivize. I'm like, I've got to work the, I've got to work the word incentivize into this, this keynote. I'm like, what does that mean exactly? I don't know, but I'm going to say, we're going to incentivize. You know, I'm like, what is happening? And I have a total crisis of confidence. Like, because, you know, shame drives two tapes, not good enough and who do you think you are? And I'm like, who, who am I? Right, snaps, terrible. Um, and so then all of a sudden, I'm like, who is it? Because what happens when you get backed into a corner? My brain is making up this story. You don't belong here. I'm like, that story's not gonna work because I'm going on in five seconds. <laughs> I'm like, so I'm like, okay, the best case scenario, attack. Attack, attack this guy. Maybe attack him from the stage. Maybe use that as my opening. You maybe say like, John Doe, Ask what I'm doing here. Well, let me tell y'all, you know. And then I click on the tweet to figure out what his name is, and I accidentally hit the link in his tweet, and it goes to this page that says, what is Brene Brown doing at HubSpot? She's talking about vulnerability, and that's so important. Here's her TED Talk, <laughs> here are her books. Um, could you imagine if I would've gone out there and been like a great, dear yeah. <laughs> Totally. No, and that's a true story, it just happened. Because so what happens is, when something hard happens, and we're captured by something difficult, 
our emotions get the first crack at making sense of something, a, a bad look, a hard phone call, a, a disagreement at work. We think that we're rational beings. We think that cognition is going to carry us through and make sense of it, but it doesn't, you know, emotions driving, thought and behavior are not even in the front seat riding shotgun. They're not even in the back seat. Thought and behavior in the trunk going, hey, and emotions driving. So the first thing we do is we tell ourselves a story that reduces ambiguity about what happened. So, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not good enough to be here. Men and women who have the greatest capacity for rising strong, in the moment something happens, they hack into that neurobiological process of making up a story. They stop and say, wait a minute, what's actually going on here? What is, what am I feeling? What do I know for sure? Because what is, you know, what is a story? There's a name in the research for a story that has one or two limited data points, and we fill in the rest with fear. Wow. It's called a conspiracy. <laughs> a conspiracy is a story with limited data points. So here's what I know. I know a guy's in a tweet. I know I'm getting ready to talk. That's all I know. So now that I'm ready to ruin his career and use him as a whipping person, you know, as I talk, what is going on? The first step of Rising Strong is recognize you've been snagged by emotion and get curious about it. That's it. But how many of you were raised in families where you were encouraged to get curious about your emotions and talk about them and explore them? <laughs> right? Versus how many of you were raised in families where you were taught, hey, suck it up. Yep. Push through and get it done. So the first thing is really reckoning with emotion. What am I feeling and, and what do I need to know more about? That is a huge, and so that thing that you say, like, yeah. does, this, does someone know something that I don't know? Do they have information I don't have? That's a huge part of the reckoning. We just don't do it. So in that minute, in the backstage, when I was on my phone, I could have just said, whoa, Brene, you're like, heart is racing, your, your teeth are clenched, and you're going in for the kill here. What do you know about this? Yeah. Nothing. You know nothing. And what if you knew everything? Who cares? Who gives a shit? Yeah. You know? There are 13,000 people, you're gonna spend an hour targeting one guy you don't know? Shame is. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, so I'd recommend if you wanna dig deeper. There's another, actually I came across another YouTube that I almost, but it was, it was amazing. It was Brene Brown interviewing, interviewing Oprah for like 20 minutes and she asked her a bunch of questions based on this kind of stuff. Like Oprah, tell us what it looks like for you to be vulnerable. Anyway, it was it's really good. I'd recommend that too. But so what I want to do now, and we can go over. Thank you, Russ. You're amazing. Woo! Go over to my um, keynote now, when my wonderful assistant back there is able to make that happen. <laughs> So this is a lot of stuff. I know this is a lot of information. Um, I want to look at it in a little more depth. Oh, here it is. Just to help us to get it solid in our own minds. And also just how does this all apply? You know, it's easy to just listen to her go on and tell her stories. But we all have stories that match what she just said. I'm be honest. We all do. I certainly do. So, thank you, Russ. The first one she mentioned was to show up, and this is where I gave you a paper that, that talks about it. Be willing to be seen even when you can't control the outcome. 
I would, I would even, I use the term, talk about the elephant in the room. When there's something going on in your relationship, are you going to pretend it's not there? I, I used to be pretty good at pretending there was no elephant in the room because you just don't know how it's going to be. But if there's something going on in the relationship, something going on in the situation, showing up kind of means I need to be authentic about what's going on with my heart and what I might be going on with your heart right now. Can we do that? Um... Are we willing to create courageous, courageous spaces so we can be fully seen? And that's, you know, and again, you add God into every one of these sentences. I'm going to go over, add God into that. It, of course, it's in him we can do, we do this. Absolutely. Um, true creativity is making something or being someone never seen before, not a clone. And that will require taking risks. Like we talked about earlier, original self who you really are has never been seen before. But if we try and copy ourselves after other people, we won't ever really walk out being our true self. I will tell, let me, I'm going to just tell a couple stories. Here's a story about me having to dig deep and show up one time. And this was at, um, at work. Uh, I had gone in, seen my patient. I think he needed a shot or something, and I came out and told the nurse to... He needs a shot. Next thing I know, and I'm at my, my desk just writing my note or doing whatever. Next thing I know, there is yelling and screaming going on in that room, like a minute or two after the nurse walked in. And this nurse, she's, she's awesome. I love her in many ways. But if she gets offended about something, she does not let it go. Let me just put it that. That's one thing that would be true about this person. And next thing I know, they have run out of the room. They're yelling and screaming at each other. And everybody else in the office is sitting at their desk ignoring it. And I'm like, uh, we need to make this stop. This, I, I just hope nobody has a gun because... And so I get up. I'm, it's very clear the office manager's not going to move. The doctor's not going to move. I need to get up and do something. So I get up and I kind of stand between them because it might be coming to punches or something. Um, and like, what's going on? And, and she, honestly, I think probably 90% of it was her. She probably got triggered by something. He said, I don't know. She can't remember because it was fight or flight for her. And she was completely irrational. And I was like, well, what's going on? And he's trying to tell me, and she's trying to tell me, and they're both kind of, she's yelling at me more than he is, actually. He's like, she's crazy. And, and she's like, he's, and then you need to take my side. And, and she's just going for it. And I'm like, uh. so I kind of like, Nothing, I mean, nobody's coming to help me. <laughs> so I slowly start walking him out. And he's like, I am never coming back here again. I understand. I mean, just trying to, I'm so sorry this happened. You know, you got to do what you got to do. Because I have no idea what happened. No, I don't think either of them knew what happened, really. They just both got triggered. So she's yelling and screaming at me that I have to take her side because that's just what you do. And da, 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 da. But I'm like, whatever. So, the next, so I just walk him out, let him go on his way. And... Um, by the time I come back, she's gone for the day because, of course, she's just thrown one massive two-year-old temper tantrum. Um, and the next day I came to work that she was there. Nobody had talked about this event, and I'm like, you could f talk about the elephant in the room. And I'm like, we're not going to just let this go. We need to talk about it. So, I mean, I didn't quite know what to do or say, but all I knew, I sat down with her and said, would you tell me about 
what happened the other day? And honestly, it was gibberish. She could not tell me what happened. You know, this was her, her guard, what I would have called a guardian, that I think, who knows? I think she's a pretty wounded soul, and I think he may have said something that just triggered her. That's all I could think happened. Um, so she kind of went on and on, and none of it made sense. So I really couldn't even find out much about what happened. But I will tell you this, because I was willing to say, could we, could we just talk about what's happening? And I didn't give her a hard time or anything else. I just, like, I need to know what happened. Everything shifted. Every, all I can tell you, the thing that had been on her, there had been a spiritual thing on her about getting offended with things, gone. Because maybe for the first time in her life, somebody actually was willing to open up about the space, even though we didn't really have a coherent conversation. But, you know, you, could, you can imagine if you had stuff in childhood where, where stuff just got stuffed and stuffed and never got talked to. And for the first time, somebody sat with her. Anyway, it shifted everything. And I would say we're closer than ever after that. And I don't think that kind of incident's ever happened since. She doesn't get offended with people like she used. So it was kind of... I didn't expect that, but I just knew, I'm like, you can't ignore this. You gotta, it wasn't comfortable. It was about one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever done. She said some pretty cruel things to me, but uh, you know, she was acting like a two-year-old. What are you gonna do with a two-year-old? You treat them like they're two years old. That's what you do. When somebody's acting like a two-year-old, you need to kind of respond to them as if they're a two-year-old and you can't expect them to be rational. So, and then I put in there that quote, which I won't go over again, but I think that's a fabulous quote to remember. Um, it's being in the arena, it's showing up, it's taking a risk, it's doing something that you know is your authentic, if, even if you aren't understood, you're gonna stand, you know, it's okay. Because God does understand you. God is down there in the, re the, the, the little, the part I would add on to that, God is with you in the arena, isn't he? God went to the arena for you already. You don't go down there by yourself, ever. Next one. Oh, maybe if I turned it on. Huh? There we go. Cultivating authenticity. This is refusing to compromise and bring your true self. Um, yeah, don't compromise being your true self by trying to fit in. It is the opposite of authenticity. How many, I can remember junior high trying to fit in. I remember I had a couple friends who had boyfriends. I did not have a boyfriend, so I pretended I had a boyfriend. I think they kind of picked up on it that I was kind of faking it. But, I mean, that's kind of, you know, obvious. But we, we do that sometimes. We say things, we act in a certain way to try and fit in and be the cool persons to get ourselves to be liked. There is nothing more desirable or attractive in the entire world than a person being their true, authentic self. That's where the uh, anointing, if you know somebody who just really stands in their anointing, it's because they're being authentic. Their anointing gets stronger and stronger when they're just being who they really are and doing it in the way they were, they were destined and called by God to be. The spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. Standing alone in the wilderness is like being in the arena. It's like being who you are, even if 
others aren't with you even if they don't fully understand who you are. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. The next one, setting boundaries. Um, do I respect my own boundaries and do I make clear what is and what is not okay? Kindly but an unambiguously? Am I courageous enough to say no? Because people sometimes get hurt or offended. That's ouch. I love, this is a Brene Brown again. She has a ring and she turns it. When you're asked to do something or feel like, you know, you're not sure, she takes this ring and she says, discomfort now or resentment later. In other words, face the discomfort of saying no now, if, if no is my answer, because if I don't do that now, I'm going to resent saying yes later. It's a really good thing to remember. But do it in kindness and gently, but just let your no be no. That would be in the scriptures, wouldn't it? And the mo here's, here's pretty, I think Brene said this, the most compassionate people have the best boundaries. Isn't that crazy? Who would have thought that? But having compassion means you have, for others, means you also have to have compassion for yourself. Every spiritual principle goes two ways, doesn't it? We want to be forgiven, we need to forgive. We need, want to be able to love, we have to first receive love. It's just the way the kingdom works. So I think that's, that's pretty astounding. And she says this big is her, her uh, um, term she uses for boundaries. Big B for boundaries. What boundaries are needed for me to stay in my integrity and be more generous to others? So even if I'm saying no, I can say it with kindness and well-meaning. And, you know, they may not know they put me in a difficult spot. I don't know. And I would also say, along with this, another thing about boundaries isn't just about me saying yes or no. It's about me not promising on behalf of other people. We need to respect other people's I can't tell you how many times good Christian people <laughs> promise on behalf of others. We want to help. I'm just going to say, we want to help so much that we try and promise something. Someone. I remember some years ago, we were doing a home group. And this lady shows up for home group like an hour early or even more maybe. We're still finishing dinner. We're cleaning up. And she's like, oh, well, so-and-so told me I could come over early and you do a, you do a heart sink on me. We're kind of, right, well, sorry, we're not going to be able to do that. But you know what I mean? Well-meaning, but really, no. You don't promise on behalf of someone else to do things. So good Christian people, <laughs> we, we want to help so much, but I can't tell you how many, how many times Christians do that. Again, it's respecting other people's boundaries. Yeah, favor. Um, is this flexible? To, when I say flexible, do these bleed into each other? I.e., if I am finding that I have to set a lot of boundaries with a person, is it time for me to show up for them or show up and say, you know, this is in my heart and this is the constant elephant? that just remains in the room. Absolutely, they all are 
These, these are all connected to each other for sure. They're sort of different facets of the same diamond, as it were. It's about really being a powerful person, strong in your sense of self and strong in, um, in the love of God, right? And that actually, that brings us to, no, actually, that's another one after that. And the next one is practicing gratitude. Probably don't have to go into this um, in depth, but... Uh, but it was interesting, the key to joy is practicing gratitude. It's not that grateful people have joy. It's that, I mean, great, big, practicing gratitude develops the joy. It's not joyful people have being grateful, who consequently being grateful, it's the other way around. Yeah, and you have to do it. You have to um, cultivate it. It's just not an automatic and embracing vulnerability. This is the one I was thinking of for you. Kind of in, involves both of those things you were just talking about. I think one thing she says is a soft, soft front, strong back. In other words, being soft and tender and empathetic, but being strong in what we know our truth to be and our values. Our strength comes from standing firm and being our true self while holding space for kindness, compassion, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. Um, the next one, perfectionism. I think this is one a lot of us probably struggle with. There is a distinct difference between perfectionism and excellence. The scriptures talk a lot about excellence, excellence in how we treat each other, excellence in how we do ministry, excellence in how we do life. In other words, do the best you can with what you've been given. It's a stewarding. It's about stewarding. Perfectionism, however, in too many people's lives is about doing whatever I can to avoid ever, ever, ever making a mistake. And as we've been learning today, if you want to really show up and be, your, be a real person, you're going to make mistakes. It's just what it is. It's a, I wish, you know, I wish, I love that Bethel with their students, they like push their students and say, if you don't make a mistake, you have failed. <laughs> I mean, basically, you know, try, try things out of your comfort zone. And yes, you'll make a mistake, but that's okay, because God is picking you up again, and you'll try again, and it'll be wonderful. Um, there is such grace for making a mistake. It's, um, it's our own hearts that we struggle with, because we feel uncomfortable with our imperfections, don't we? We use it as an armor to avoid feel, uh, appearing weak and pretending to be more capable and knowledgeable than we really are. It protects us from being hurt, from being seen. It, but it takes a whole lot of energy to maintain this image of impermeability to itself and others. What stories do we need to make up in order to maintain perfectionism? Yeah. Number seven, I think this is a really important one too. Learn to explore your emotions. Be curious. Like going back to my coworker. What if she had stopped and been curious about what happened that day? She might have figured out why were you so raging angry. I'll promise you it goes back to childhood stuff. I have no doubt about it. It almost always does. Well, 
It always does. We sometimes have a hard time getting that loop to, no, it's not your boss, no, it's not, you know, whatever, your ex-husband, it probably goes back even, possibly even further to something from your family of origin. Um, but we do tend to make up stories about what that what the other person, we try and um, find out, um, you know, the story that justifies me and makes you out to be the bad guy. I recently was kind of triggered by someone at a different work, my, my newer work, a person that was newer who, um, first time I met her, first day I meet this person, and she says to me, oh, you're a perfectionist just like me. I'm like, huh? What? <laughs> it felt very uncomfortable, besides the fact that wasn't a value of mine. And I was making up all kinds of stories and really judging her and... Not, I do not like this person. I especially don't like her because she's a Christian. Oh, because her next, her next sentence was, who are the other Christians here in this office? I'm like, ugh. And it's also about only Christians that are the okay people, too. I'm like, so I really had to. <laughs> and I wish I could say, and I tried really hard, and I you know, really tried to be more gracious to her. I wish I could say it's turned out, and unfortunately something new has happened that's Maybe has made things even worse. So I need to be strong and powerful and draw a boundary with this person because she really did something to undermine me. So, um, yeah, so I'm trying to be strong and powerful with this person and keep my compassion on at the same time, <laughs> which has not been an easy one. But, you know, it's very clear to me looking at, for, at this situation, since none of you know who this person is, they have such a strong value for being a perfectionist, they're only comfortable with the idea with other people being like her. And, of course, Christians. Who's the Christians? I need to know who the safe people are in this this office, so, or whatever that means. I don't know what that means. Not, not necessarily, though. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know why that was important, except she comes from the South, so that may be part of it. I don't know part of her um, value system. Anyway, I'm needing to work on that one and work on my boundaries, but keep my soft, open, open heart towards her, but stay strong in my values of who I am. And it's to be determined because I haven't been back to see her since that's all happened. So what I'm going to do in the last 10 minutes, sorry, with all the technical stuff, we ran out of time much faster than I was expecting. But what I'd love for you to do is get back in your little groups. And what I'm going to do is going to divide up um, and have you all talk about uh, two of these qualities. And here's the question to ask yourself. What would my life look like if I did this more? Okay, so Shannon, why don't your group, your group take number one and two, okay, and Henry, Teresa, why don't your group do number three and four, and just talk together about what if I was able to set better boundaries, what would my life look like, okay, and then um, Karen, Marcia, uh, five and six, yeah, and favor your group, seven and eight. And I didn't even talk, talk about this one. The last one I actually threw on there from a different Brene, which is play. 
um, which I might encourage all of you to start playing more. I'll just say that quickly. Um, play is doing something that is fun, that is non-goal-oriented. That might be the really hard thing for a lot of us because we all want goal-oriented. We want to make it happen. We want to do, but like a child at play, there's no goal, there's no purpose. It's done for the sheer joy of doing it, experimenting, not necessarily accomplishing anything, like playing games. Well, unless you're really competitive, I suppose. But anyway, the idea would be playing games for the fun of it, um, music, art. How about take classes? Just explore something new and different. Um, anyway, okay? So we're going to only take a very few short minutes, and then um, I'll, I'll give you, uh, yeah, about, you just talk within your group, give you about four minutes to do that, and then we'll be closing. I guess increment by increment. I don't think it's all, yeah. How about get free with experimenting and laugh if it doesn't work? You know? Anybody else? Yeah? Um, and say which one you're talking about. Uh, for show up. For me personally, I, I had a situation like this very recently. So once we were able to deal with the elephant in the room, it was, it's, it, it's like such a sigh of relief when you deal with your own stuff and you show up and you deal with the situation. Sometimes it takes a few days, a couple of weeks, because you're trying to deal with your own stuff on the inside. But once you come back together, you talk about it, it feels so much better. So. That's a good word, and this is so the kingdom. Because as Danny Silk would say, it's about keeping connection with other people. The, to the best we are able to. It does require the other person's willingness, but to the best we are able to keep connection. Yeah. Anyone else? Any other thoughts? Well, um, for exploring, exploring emotions, uh, I was talking with my group and saying that I really, there was a lot of me that stuffed emotion down. So now that, you know, I'm older and learning how to explore and at wonderful blazing fire that encourages that. Um, it's so interesting the things that I find are the source. It's so interesting the things that I find really made me mad. And I try not to rush through the process because I think I'm one who wants to just be over something. But no, there's something that made me mad and we have to find the rabbit trail to unloose that knot. And then lastly, play. I'm often labeled as a creative, and so even the fun stuff is often like, hey, but it has a goal attached to it, too. And so I actually really like painting, and I have no other, I don't have a deadline to get so many canvases out or anything like that. I just enjoy it, throwing on the music, and so that's my, um, that's what, it would look like more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, may I say permission to every one of you, play more. Play. More, play more. I love, I get, <laughs> having grandkids makes it easy because just hanging out with the grandkids because you're just like, everything turns into a game. What We made pizza on my tummy once, I remember. <laughs> oh, there's the sauce. What do you want to put on it? And she's a vegetarian. Oh, okay, no pepperoni. Uh, <laughs> baked pepperoni, no, it was. Yeah, I'm laying down the, on the ground and she's making pizza on my tummy for a half hour or something, whatever. <laughs> I mean, everything turns into play when, when you're young. 
And as adults, we weren't supposed to lose that because we need to laugh more, we need to enjoy more, we need to be more. Anybody else? One more thought? Anybody? Okay. For next time, I think Kat is planning on joining me. Um, we are going to do, you're going to do, need to do homework for this one. And this is to gather no more than three to four of your prophetic words. Because this is about destiny. And you can't just, you can't bring 20 pages of unfiltered stuff because there just won't be time to do it. So no more than a couple pages, we'll put it that way, so a couple pages worth of prophetic words. And some of you may have done this exercise, but probably most of you haven't. And I want you to pull them out, the key, what you think might be the key words over your life. Not just, you know, I was going through something and that kind of got me through that situation. These, these are the ones that you think have something to do with your destiny. And I want you to highlight the key words before you come in. And Kat will help. She's got a great, an amazing anointing to help people craft their their prophetic words into a destiny statement that you then can use to speak over your life, proclaim over your life going forward. And I know Bill Johnson does this kind of thing like all the time. Still, Bill Johnson still does this, reads over his prophetic words. So this is the piece where we're going to go after a little more after destiny, which is what we've kind of been building to. But as you can see, so key to be more in touch with original self because those prophetic words are going to be best actualized through that original self and not by trying hard with your soul to make it happen. It's the natural fruit of intimacy with God. Yeah. Um, so when you say um, prophetic words, does that mean words that were given to us by others? Or could that be dreams or just when we read scriptures or... Um, Bo, it could be either or, just what you think are the keys, not every, like I said, not a whole notebook worth of them, because there's just, you know, the idea is the other people in your little group will help you define, um, kind of refine it and summarize it and put it into a, a like a one paragraph. Does that make sense? So I'm saying limit it to two to three pages maximum and only what you know. That's why you got to do some homework. Go home and look at them. What are the key ones that are really about your destiny and calling? So that's on you to do that. And I'd encourage you underlying, you know, like the key phrases, key words in that. Does that make sense? All right. Well, let me just pray over you guys. You guys were awesome tonight. This is, um, this is not easy stuff to process. I mean, what would, just, what would our world look like if more people got this? We wouldn't be all hurting each other all the time, or we would hurt each other still, but we'd process it together, and it wouldn't be like breaking up relationships all the time. Anyway, yes, that too. Let's be honest about that elephant. I really screwed up and messed up. I'm so sorry, but that's my elephant. Oh, that one, that one over there is actually yours. <laughs> this one's mine. <laughs> yours is pooping more than mine, though. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Okay.
Okay, well, Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Oh, Jesus, that you, you love to laugh with us. You love to laugh with us. You love to have fun with us. And Jesus, we just, we just like, ah, my, my closing prayers. Jesus, that in our lives we would we'd have grace to not take the little things so seriously anymore. And that there would be more joy, more freedom, more being able to rise over the little things of life that would love to suck the life out of us. <laughs> that really don't matter all that much in the light of eternity, God. So I pray just in these these coming weeks that for each and every one of us, God, there would be a greater revelation of who we really are in you, that we really are seated in heavenly places at all times and that no one can do anything about that. It's who we are. We live seated next to you, in you, that there is no separation. We have perfect union in you, Jesus. Would you make that a living, breathing reality for all of us? Wow. Jesus, in your name, amen. Hey.